0: reconstructionist radio podcast network presents the kingdom driven family podcast with your host andrea schwartz this podcast will equip and empower you to help advance christ's kingdom through god's primary institution the family building a home that serves christ in his kingdom
1: this is andrea schwartz The interview you're about to hear was recorded in February of 2018. You will hear Matt and Helen Belleville discuss their own personal journey with the adoption of two girls along with their heart for the church to recapture its mission to help orphans in their distress. The first part of the interview will be their personal story and then the second part a vision for what they would like to see occur. Keep in mind that this couple, in endeavoring to serve God and keep His commandments faithfully, are throwing out a number of ideas, ideas worth listening to and building upon. Tonight, I am pleased to have with me a married couple, Matt and Helen Belleville. And I'm in California, and they are in Malaysia. So I think we're actually on two separate days here. I'm on a Friday and they're on a Saturday. And the subject that we're going to explore is the role of Christians in helping to deal with the pervasive subject of orphans in the world, not just in our own locale, but everywhere that the church is supposed to reach out and make the care of orphans. A priority. So welcome Matt and Helen. Thank
2: you. Thanks for
0: having us.
1: So I'm gonna let you guys switch back and forth giving us a little background on both of you, how you ended up in Malaysia, and about your heart for orphans.
0: Uh, nine months after we were married we went to Kurdistan in northern Iraq Helen was teaching at a private uh, Christian school, and I was helping build schools for refugee children that fled from ISIS. And after about two years of being there, there was conflicts with local administration compromising biblical ethics. So we had to leave, and they were the way we stayed with visas. So after that, we started heading towards East Asia, Helen took a TEFL course in Thailand, and we were just looking for jobs at that point because we had to have some way to stay in a country.
2: We actually thought we were going to China, and so the TEFL course was part of that process, and then we found out China wasn't going to (laughs) work.
1: So, Just explain uh, to people what a TEFL course is. uh,
2: Teaching English as a foreign language.
1: Mm -hmm. So your entrance into any country would be based on the fact that you were a teacher helping locals learn English.
2: That's right, yeah. At least that's what we thought we were going to have to do to be able to work in China or Asia, and Matt's always had a heart for Asia.
1: When you both married, Mm -hmm. did you both know that the mission field was something that you wanted to pursue?
0: I think it was a far-off thought in my head. I think Helen was always ready to go back because she was there for about two years before we were married in northern Iraq as a single woman.
1: Okay, so Helen, tell us a little bit about what motivated you to do that kind of mission work.
2: I got my degree in business administration and then helped start a school in Oregon. And two years in, it was up and running, and I just kept thinking, there must be something more for me to do with my time and efforts. I also didn't have a great eschatology, really, (laughs) in order to help me understand how what I could be doing right there was actually affecting the kingdom. So I kind of felt like I had to go do something really important. The burden on my heart that God put was the orphans in Iraq. And I didn't know anything about Iraq. So I started reading and studying and then found an organization that was working there. And so that's I went over to teach. And I ended up realizing that I was working with orphans, even though they had families, they weren't being cared for as children. And so that was my role as a teacher was to come in and not only teach history or math or whatever I was teaching, but to also give them some perspective on life and the decisions that they were facing.
1: So you didn't have any backlash over the fact that you were sharing a Christian world and life view?
2: We could do it in a very limited context.
0: So we had to present information by stating, this is the Bible's worldview, or this is the Bible's approach to this topic. As long as we prefaced anything we said with that, we could be pretty blatant in what we said.
2: Or even, I believe, this is what I would do in your situation. Now, that's
1: ironic to me, because in American public schools, the teacher has <laughs> not that kind of freedom, and here you are in Iraq.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I think it shows that if Christians do a good job, they can speak before kings openly, right? So these are government...
2: Families that are sending their children to these schools.
0: Like mayors and governors and...
2: And because it's it's a Christian school, they do such a good job teaching that people want to send their kids there.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay, so from what Matt said... There was some sort of administrative problem, which we don't have to go into. But then rather than returning to the States, which is where you're both from, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you were thinking, okay, this is something we're familiar with. We have a heart for it. And you started looking for another place to serve.
2: Mm -hmm. That's
0: right.
1: And somehow you ended up in Malaysia.
0: Yeah. (laughs) That's how it feels even now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You wake up and you say, we're in Malaysia.
2: Yeah. 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 (laughs)
0: We've been here for almost two years now.
2: So when China fell through, we started looking for jobs, and Matt found one here. So I applied for it. I was accepted last minute because this was the end of July, and school started beginning of August. (laughs) So we got here. I started training for it, and I was teaching a joint second and third grade class. Who were
1: your students? Tell me about their families. Where, Where were the families coming from?
2: Some of them are missionary kids some of them are local kids Um, some of them have special needs and they're being integrated into the classroom a few were refugees who've come to malaysia trying to get a visa to australia or the u.s or canada
1: so how different did you find educating in oregon to educating in iraq to educating in
2: malaysia hmm that's a good question i learned how to teach in iraq i did private tutoring and things in oregon but i was thrown in the deep end when i went to iraq and i just had to learn on the ground full speed my first classroom was 26 eight to nine year old boys who had no respect for women and they were known as the animals People didn't, some teachers skipped that class just because they didn't want to deal with those kids. So I had to learn to gain their respect, gain their trust, and motivate them to learn. And were you successful? I I was, actually. It
0: became one of the best grades or classes from the whole school in that city.
2: So over time, yeah, we saw a difference. And when we went back, again, those kids came up to me, you know, and, Showed me different certificates and things that I'd given them, just as small increments of encouragement that they were improving. They were doing a good job, um, so they kept yeah, it for I'm, five years. That <laughs> you
1: know, was pretty amazing. Wow, wow! Yeah. Now I, I haven't seen you in person, but I don't—you don't strike me from your pictures as being somebody who's very, very tall.
2: <laughs> I'm, I'm five four, so some of those kids were bigger than me.
1: <laughs> so that says a lot about how you spoke with the power of God behind you because you had a lot of things going against you before they even met you.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I came in halfway through the year as the emergency teacher. So there was already... I didn't get to start out on a positive note with them. And I learned how to depend on the Lord and the Holy Spirit (laughs) Mm -hmm. that first year so much. He really humbled me. And then showed me what it meant to pray and walk by the spirit.
1: So in Malaysia, did you find the circumstances of schools different than your previous experience?
2: A lot different. Um, I did have to. they would classify them as special needs, but really they were just boys who had different learning styles. They weren't going to sit for long periods of time in class. So it was just a matter of Finding a style that worked for them without distracting the rest of the class. At the same time, these other students, they're there to learn. It was nothing like my classes in Iraq. So in some ways, it was a walk in the park. A lot more resources. The challenge is teaching two grades at the same time.
1: And Matt, what were you doing in Malaysia when you first got there while she was teaching?
0: Through Iraq to Malaysia, that's when I started to really learn about... The deep end of Reconstructionism. I was, you know, vague post millennial at the beginning of Iraq, but then really seeing how the God's Word applies to every area of life and how Jesus Christ enforced that. So we're supposed to walk and walk in that law in our lives. So I had no idea what I was doing because Helen was the full-time teacher, and so I was trying to figure out what does Malaysia need. Uh, what I came up with was. There's a lot of stateless orphans here, and so I started gathering information because I'm really good at big picture, so I piled up all this information, and then I showed it to my wife who's really good at the small practical stuff, and then that's when we started hashing things out.
1: So tell me a little bit about the orphan situation in Malaysia. Are there many orphans? Is it a rarity, or is it actually a very common thing to see orphans on the street?
0: So there's a huge amount of orphans in Malaysia. If they're Malaysian orphans, they usually go into the Islamic welfare system, or maybe there's a couple of private orphanages that might care for them. But usually it's the government welfare However, there's also stateless orphans here because Malaysia is a really big hub for having foreign workers in the construction field. They get maids from the Philippines and Thailand, uh, security guards from Nepal. So there's just this melting pot of these foreign workers that are very low on the totem pole. And a lot of times they get duped out of their visas. Uh, They get sold into different types of forced slavery. And then they have kids here. So when they have kids here, those kids are stateless. They don't even exist in the eyes of governments.
1: But do they still have parents who care for them, or are they pretty much abandoned?
0: Most of the time, they're abandoned. Because a lot of these people that come here are married back in their country and have seven kids. And they came here to work to support them. They have a relationship with someone that's not their spouse. So,
1: I can understand because it's not an uncommon situation historically that men will abandon their children, but you're saying that women abandon their children as well? Yes. That shouldn't be terribly surprising because we have women in the West who maybe mm-hmm. don't abandon their children outside the womb. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They definitely do inside the womb.
0: That's right. And technically, as far as like abortion, that's illegal except for there are, you can get the pill form, and you can get it under Islamic care centers, usually outside the city. They do do abortions before the, I think it's the 20th day. You can get an abortion from an Islamic doctor.
1: So in working with organizing what you would do to help the orphans, what did you come up with?
2: Um, We just started to talk to people that we knew who had adopted learned about their circumstances. It was really God's timing. I had to leave that job. They had promised visas to their teachers and it's a Christian school, but they weren't following through to the point where the principal and his four kids had to go back to the States. You know, they packed up and moved their whole family, sold everything. They were gonna live there for two years or whatever and they don't have a visa so now they're being kicked out the country so I ended up leaving because we the school's just taking advantage of teachers and this keeps happening year after year so if we don't leave they're just going to continue to do it
1: so then you stopped working at the school Mm -hmm. so on what basis were you able to remain in
2: Malaysia we weren't sure we thought okay because we actually got flagged as well we were told when we had, cause they make you do visa runs. then if you're not, if you don't have a permanent visa, you have to leave every 90 days. Yeah. yeah. So we were paying for that out of pocket too, going to Vietnam, Thailand, and then coming back in the country again, hoping that they would say, Oh, you can come back in on a tourist visa. But this last time they had said, okay, we'll let you come back in. You know, we'll, we'll even give you the, the 90 days. But after that, you need to go back to the U S so we were prepared to do that but then when i left the school the week after we were approached by a woman who knew we were interested in adopting and she showed us a picture of this adorable little girl and she said this little girl needs a home and it's a really complicated situation would you just be praying for her <laughs> and i looked at her picture and i looked at that and i think he knew what was going through my mind <laughs> and so We got in touch with the lady who was helping her, and also got in touch with someone who knew how to help us get professional visas to stay here, and we just saw God's timing working this all out so we could actually—because I wouldn't have been able to pursue adopting working a full-time job at the school, and we would not have thought to look for other visas if we hadn't left the school. So it was really—
0: God's providence. Yeah.
2: So how do you support
1: yourself?
0: We have online
2: jobs.
1: So this little, I guess she was a little girl that you saw a picture of, mm-hmm. How did? what did you do after that? Did you start the process of being able to adopt her?
2: We didn't know anything about what that would look like in the States. So we ended up helping the mom, taking her to the registration department to get the child a birth certificate, taking her for medical things. The mom wasn't really willing to let her go yet. But she wanted to leave um, once the little girl got her birth certificate. And so the little girl stayed with her that whole time. And we were just getting to know her, helping the mom out with the anticipation that when the mom left, she would leave her with us. And then we would start the adoption process.
0: There was some complications with the adoption because we had met the mother. And as far as U.S. law goes, if you meet the mother, it's a no-go. You can't adopt them. Because who knows if you coursed or any yeah. different things like that.
2: She also was going to delay her leaving a lot later. So we didn't actually think that we were going to get this little girl till April of this year. So I see. we were just moving forward with other things, continuing to be part of her life. And, and then we got the call for the twins.
1: Oh, yeah. So I hadn't mentioned this before because when <laughs> I see pictures of you on Facebook – You have two little girls that look remarkably like each other. (laughs) So tell me about the twins.
2: Um, So then in July, we were getting settled here. Our visas were working out. They had actually just gone through, and we had just signed on a new apartment because our contract was up on the old one. And we got a call saying that there's two little girls in the hospital. They were... Premature, they'd been there for two months, so they were healthy and ready for discharge, but nobody wanted to take them. So would we consider doing it?
1: So where were their
2: parents? The mother was there, but whether it was during the pregnancy or just after delivery, she expressed her desire to place them with a family. So another woman was planning to adopt them
0: but she wanted her name on the birth cert, which is illegal because she didn't give birth. And the hospital said no. So that woman backed out of adopting the twins.
2: Then the mother was looking for help and she had people in her community who were also helping her look. But that meant that agents were coming to look at the children. And agents are actually human traffickers.
1: So they even start trafficking little girls at that age?
2: Oh uh, yeah. yeah because people want babies and not just sexual human trafficking but want to have more kids or they can't have kids of their own
0: so not every human trafficking case is necessarily diabolical per se sometimes it's they actually want a family member and a lot of illegal adoptions like that do happen in Malaysia where it's just families want a kid but the process to legally do it is very hard
1: and where are these families from? Are they from Malaysia or are they from other countries who want to come in and, and circumvent the bureaucratic process?
0: It, both. it could be both, yeah, outside or inside. So what the hospital did actually is they started spreading lies about the baby's health, that they were in critical condition, that they might not make it. They or could, that they could have
2: future problems. issues. Yeah. I think you knew test. that that wasn't the case. Actually, we didn't, we were told That one was healthy for discharge, but the other one was still, they still had some concerns. So we were thinking, um, contacting people about, like, what do we do? Like, what kind of medical equipment will we need? Like the little heart monitors and stuff that you lay them on. And we were prepared for extreme needs.
1: And did you have support from other believers either back home in the States or who were around you that were willing to help you shoulder this financial burden?
2: Well, we had 24 hours to make a decision. <laughs> so it wasn't a lot of time to muster up support or contact people.
0: But there's a Facebook group, you know, a level headed Christian Reconstructionist group on Facebook. And uh, I was really struggling with the fact that all these finances, medical, were just going to stack up. And I could not see how we could get through that or how we'd be able to care for them with all these expenses. So I just asked the question, is it okay to sell yourself into slavery to provide for your family? Because that's essentially what we have to do. <laughs> Swipe our what, card. What was the
1: answer you got?
0: Uh, most of the Reconstruction said, of course, what's your problem? Rescue the girls.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: right. So that's what we planned on doing. Um, but Jason Sanchez from uh, Reconstructionist Radio, they started a... Fundraiser for us on you caring, and that's been really helpful. Uh, that was really helpful in the very beginning.
1: So you raised enough money to be able to keep your head above water, taking these two little girls into your family.
2: Well, actually, we we took out a um, cash advance because they had about seven thousand dollars in medical right off the bat that the hospital said had to be paid, or they were going to call welfare and send the kids there.
1: I see. How old are the little girls now and what are their names?
2: Well, they just turned nine months. Their corrected age would be seven months because they were two months premature. And their names are Adelaide and Elena.
1: And are they both healthy?
2: They are, yeah. Mercifully, (laughs) they are beautiful and healthy.
1: So that's not the normal road to parenthood. Um, I think everybody would probably agree with that. And... What prompted this particular podcast, because I've known you for a couple of months now and I knew your story, another child has come across your path and both of you are now considering what's your responsibility when another orphan who has needs is brought to your attention.
2: Are you interested in Christian education? Would you like to learn how to be a Christian teacher or how to run your very own Christian school with success? The GCS Apprenticeship Program can help. Learn more on our website at gcsapprenticeship.com. So about a month ago, I read on, there's kind of a group of us now who are made aware of orphans in need and Sometimes the mother just needs help. Sometimes the child needs, has medical needs or paperwork. You know, somebody needs to take them to the registration office and walk through that process with them. So this woman who's involved in that, she posted about this little deaf and mute girl who's seven. And I called her and said, okay, what are the details? You know, how can we be praying for her? What what are the needs? And One of the concerns is that because of her disabilities, she is a prime target for trafficking. She can't speak for herself. So that's why she was kind of on this emergency list. The family that she's with can't keep her any longer. She's school age, and because she doesn't have any paperwork, she can't go to school here. So a lot of reasons why people wouldn't take her into their home, even if they want a child so for about a month we were kind of throwing the information out there A network of people were looking um, for a family for her and as the time just ticked on matt and i said okay what do we do if no one steps up and when we took in the twins we realized that when god says carefully the orphan there's no if ands or buts about it <laughs> yeah. um if they're not orphans you know then you can help their mom you can you have options but when they are it becomes your responsibility
1: so you both take it to mean that the very fact that god makes you aware of something doesn't mean necessarily you're going to do the adopting but that you now are on notice that you are part or are to be part of the solution
0: that's right
1: So what's the status of this little one now?
2: There is a center that helps disabled children, but the concern is that she's been with a family this whole time. Sending her to a center could be a very difficult transition. So we're actually going to meet with the lady who's helping her next week to get more information, but it looks like the optimal option is to move her in with a family.
1: And so are you considering the potential of actually adopting her?
2: At least having her come and stay with us like with the US and the adoption process. We're not sure how that would work
0: So there's three options. There's either we would be long-term foster Until we bring the girls back for their citizenship in the US the twins there's we're gonna try to a- adopt the, the seven-year-old girl and we would probably have to come back to Malaysia to get through that process on the Malaysian side and the U.S. side. Or the third option is we would try to be that loving family that helps her kind of get through that emotional trauma as we transition her into that disability, Christian disability center here in Malaysia.
1: I'm curious, how amenable is the United States in terms of you as citizens coming back with girls you've adopted from another country?
2: They're amenable as long as you have the money to pay them for it <laughs> and you go through all the right processes.
1: And how much does that amount to? Uh,
0: for the twins, including what we've already had to pay and what's ahead, the twins were about 20000 which we're still working towards.
1: As you raise enough money, when that threshold is met, then you can move along, but without that 20000 raised, you can't?
0: we can move forward. It'll just be in the form of debt uh, and very slow chipping away. Like
2: we are in process right now, just trying to try and get one stage done at a time. But then once the, like for the final application and all that, we would have to have all those funds.
1: Okay, so we spend some time talking about your personal situation, but that's not the limit of where your heart is. Your heart is basically... Having Christians become aware of that the top priority that God's word says is to care for widows and orphans in their distress. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of these women that you're helping, mm-hmm. if even the ones that want to give up their children in, mm-hmm. in a very real sense are widows because mm-hmm. they don't have a husband there who's supporting them and whether emotionally and financially. But for a lot of people, especially those of us who are in the States. It's always struck me as very difficult. You can kill a baby for a very small amount of money, but to adopt a baby costs a tremendous Mm -hmm. amount. Mm -hmm. And for some people, if they're weighing the idea that we're not supposed to in debt, go into debt. Mm -hmm. So balancing those things out, have you in the process of spending a lot of time thinking about this have any sense of how the church in terms of a congregation and a community of individual believers in specific regions could actually be instrumental in helping this process bring the price down tremendously in order to do it? Because whoever mm-hmm. is profiting from the money, chances are, are not as interested in the, the welfare and the spiritual life of the child.
2: Yeah, I would say first it needs to be an education that adopting children to grow your family isn't the same as caring for orphans. It would be similar to someone carrying out an abortion ministry because they want a kid. That's not going to last. I mean, it's a great thing that they're doing, but as soon as they have their child, the ministry stops. And the same thing with Adopting to grow your family, you know, a lot of people say, oh, hey, you know, we can't have kids of our own, so we finally decided to adopt, and they go and they tell people and people are like, wow, that's great, you're caring for the orphan. But really, it's doing a disservice to all the other orphans out there, um, because while they might be taking in an orphan, it's actually deadening the church's sense of the massive need of orphans, uh, because it leaves this burden on adoption agencies and things to, to care for the orphan. By giving them homes, and by giving these people who want kids the right child for them.
1: So Matt, let me ask you this because you said that Helen's good at the details and the the more um, personal aspect or on the ground thing, and that you're more of a big picture kind of guy. What's your big picture assessment of the best way for individuals and churches to actually care for the orphan
0: well my context is in malaysia so i when i talk sometimes i might reference the malaysian situation specifically i think the first thing we need to realize is it's absolutely required of the church to care for orphans there's no escaping that and what we want to do is we want to delegate responsibility like helen was just saying to these outside institutions that have been created and i think that's That's the first thing to really get the church's vision correct, is that a lot of those institutions we've created, whether it's the adoption agencies or the places in the home country that find the children, they're not actually caring for orphans. They're just pointing at an orphan and then pointing at a family and saying, oh, here we go, and then there's one orphan taken care of. Now, there's a big problem there, because when we care for orphans, it's not just the physical need, but it's uh, it's training them to be productive, and that doesn't happen with these agencies and these different institutions we started. So I think the first thing that the church needs to do every local gathering uh, of believers is they need to assess what is the current state of orphans in, in their county, in their state, in their country. The U.S. doesn't have the same problem that we have here in Malaysia because we give citizenship to everybody on at birth. So there's not a really there's not a stateless issue there whereas here there is a stateless issue and so for example in Malaysia there's a group of Christians that want to care for the stateless but what that means is a one month trip to an area where there's a bunch of stateless people and you teach them English. But that's not really taking care of those orphans that are there in those communities.
1: So do you envision more of being a hub so that those who know of orphans or are in touch with orphans look to individual people as resources, and then that resource person or those resource people are the ones who then try to get other people involved because obviously, no matter how big your heart is, there comes a limit to the number of individuals you can help personally. So it sounds like what you want to do is develop a protocol that gives Christians who have a desire to care for orphans and and the way you described that they have a set path on how they might do that.
0: Yeah, and I think the big problem we run into is the institutional churches here, they want to like bottleneck everything through a specific church. You know, that's a power struggle that happens. And so with those institutions, you never get anywhere and that's the big problem a lot of these Christians here, just Malaysians in general, these countries that have kind of followed the path of American law and its disobedience from God, which is very top-down, they have this institutional mindset where everything has to come through, filter through an institution, has to go through all the checks and balances. Someone's got to be above you saying you can do it. And that's one of the big things we hit with wanting to create a network, wanting to create some sort of information flow.
2: And I would say, on like the other side, on the individual level, it seems like there's a misunderstanding of what we're doing, of what caring for orphans looks like. A lot of people, you know, will say, "Oh, it's great you guys have twins." You know, did you always want twins? And it's like, well, no, that's, that's not the point, really. You know, that's not why we did it. It's because we want to be obedient to the Lord, which also means that the next time there's a situation like this. We're going to do it again. It's not like, Oh, we reached our number. This kid meets our qualifications for what it means to be a Belleville. (laughs) (laughs) You know, this is no, this is an orphan, one of God's children. And so we need to care for her, care for him. And sometimes that means that we adopt personally. Sometimes that means that we help find a family who can adopt, but it doesn't mean, you know, be warm, be filled. It's, an actual taking an interest and not putting that responsibility onto someone else.
1: So in the case of your daughters, they're no longer orphans because Mm -hmm. they're your children. I've often struggled with this because I honestly think more people would take children into Mm -hmm. their homes in the States. But if you do, and you just did it individually that you found a, a widow, or and if you have a widow and a child, then you would help both, but let's mm-hmm. say you have a, a dedicated situation where there are no parents, mm-hmm. um, a lot of people, especially those who are already involved in homeschooling, to then open the door to have the state come in and approve mm-hmm. your house and approve this or that, for some people, and I, I would actually find myself among them, saying, mm-hmm. is, is this the godly way to proceed? So I've, I've constantly been thinking about and talking to people and you. that's one of the reasons I was interested in talking to you both is because I think those considerations are real mm-hmm. and yet just like families decided, well, we can homeschool our children. We don't have to do that through the auspices of the state. I mm-hmm. would love to see a way in which we could bring in the, first of all, taking orphans into our home and making them part of our family. And at the same time, then setting up a network so that other people would see this is not so unconfrontable.
2: I agree. And I think it differs state to state. So if you can connect with other believers and that's, this is why it shouldn't just be limited to parents or people who are looking at adopting a child, but I think the network needs to include lawyers and business people who can give advice and support to people who are doing the adopting and the taking in of the orphan like all those pieces have to come together i think if the church really wants to make a difference
0: and regarding what you're saying about letting in the state into the home i think the reason why they come into the home is because we as the bride of christ have failed to do what we were already supposed to be doing so we get a faux bureaucratic power religion alternative that we have to deal with now and it's kind of like our punishment and i think the way we're going to change it is we we have to serve better than the state does Mm -hmm. and their foster homes that are based on humanism or in their whole system that we just have to within the parameters of the system that is currently in power we just have to serve better Mm -hmm. and as we start taking in most of the orphans in the U.S., most of the orphans in Malaysia, right? And we're caring for them way better than the state can, that God will bless that, and they'll start to lose their power, you know, because power comes through serving.
1: So you honestly have a long-term vision for this because you yourselves know the hurdles that you have to be able to get over. Have you actually started a network that? does what you're hoping it will do? Or is this still in the planning phases?
2: Yeah, we're just kind of throwing out the feelers to see if other Christians feel this way or if they're in the same situation and have the same needs or if we're just sort of a unique
0: Oddity. situation.
2: <laughs> yeah, uh, But we're finding actually people have been messaging me. They have the same needs. They have the same lack of understanding in their communities about what they're doing and why it has to be so sacrificial You know, because as soon as you hit roadblocks, it's hard to go to Christians who have already told you that you're crazy for doing what you're doing (laughs) to confide in them and say, we've hit a roadblock and we don't know what to do. So it's isolating.
1: So if people wanted to get in touch with you, ask you questions or present a need or a desire on their part, how would they do that?
2: Facebook is easy. Also, email.
1: On Facebook, how would they find you?
2: Either Matthew McKay Belleville or Helen Belleville.
1: Via email?
2: It's Helen B, as in Belleville, from GP at gmail.com.
1: Okay. So Helen B from GP at gmail.com. Yep. So what are the plans for you in terms of returning to the U.S.?
2: We'll have to come back once the application is accepted for the girls' citizenship, and we're hoping that will be at the end of the year. And then we would need to wait there until they could get their passports and everything in order for us to come back.
1: And so coming back to Malaysia is your ultimate end goal. You have come back to handle the citizenship, but you want to both return to Malaysia to serve there.
0: Well, one of the big things is with the – the girl here, and if we can build a system where we can actually do something, because if we're just alone in this, we're not going to be able to do much more than to take just a few children. Uh, and so at that point, we have to decide: okay, have we been able to build up a system that's going to be supportive in the work here? You know, uh uh, people in different f- fields and skills, reconstructionists who deal in different types of work where we can train these children who don't have an opportunity to work here because maybe we end up taking care of 50 children, but we can't adopt all of them. But we can right. train these stateless kids into people that are excellent in their craft because, hey, we know the guy who knows how to type Facebooks. books. So it really depends on the system we're able to build in these next few months Can we actually have a ministry that will be beneficial, or is it going to be more beneficial for us to stay in the states and network there?
1: So your goal is to not only share your vision with others to be participators in the necessary work of caring for orphans, but you're looking at it from the point of view of where you can be most effective and have the greatest results. That's right. Well, thank you both. I hope that your vision, and it's certainly in the mustard seed stage at this point, grows to be the huge tree that the mustard seed produces, but that you will have other people who are interested in networking with you, not only to help you with your particular situation that you're with regards to the 7-year-old girl, but there might be mutual benefit in helping them pursue those things that God is putting on their heart
2: thank you yeah thank you
1: well join me again next time for another edition of the Kingdom Driven Family Podcast
0: thank you for joining Andrea Schwartz and the Kingdom Driven Family Podcast holding up the family and self-government as a true and lasting means of transforming society please visit the kingdomdrivenfamily.com and reconstructionistradio.com